Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the Church Planner Podcast. Before we started today, wanted to tell you about a really special opportunity. Our friends at the Micro Church Conference put on by Brave Future, um, happening April 18th through the 20th in Kansas City. This is for all of you who are wondering what is a new kind of paradigm for missional church planting and church multiplication through smaller expressions of church, what they call rediscovering the smaller way. It's happening April 18th through the 20th. Kansas City is being hosted by Kansas City Underground. It's going to be a great weekend. And they've given us four free registrations to give away. Normally the price is $90, but we will get you into the conference for free. We have four of those. What you can do to enter is go on our Instagram at Church Planter Podcast. And there you'll find um, a, a DM button. Click that DM button. Send us a DM with your email on it and your name and where you serve. So email, name, where you serve, and you'll be entered to win one of four micro church conference registrations. You just get yourself to Kansas City and uh, you can be there and learn a ton from our friends at Brave Futures. Hope you enjoy the show today. The illustrious Jabba bids you welcome. <laughs> I'm going to regret this. I'm Pete Mitchell. He's Peyton Jones. And this is the Church Planner Podcast, brought to you by Church Planner Magazine. Church Planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. And uh, we got a special, special podcast for you today. I'm actually uh, kind of excited about this one. As Peyton knows, and as Peyton loves to tell you, the listener, when it comes to authors, I actually refuse to do those podcasts with Peyton. I literally will not do those podcasts because Peyton is like a little kid in a candy store. Oh, I got an author on here. And he, he just wants to dive in and talk about the book. Like, uh, oh, who was the guy you had? Uh, R.C. Sproul, the guy who wrote the book on R.C. Sproul. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. there's no way I'm getting on that podcast. It's going to be absolutely <laughs> miserable for me. What was even better, though, was that you couldn't. You couldn't stomach more than what, like four minutes of minutes. it. Thirteen minutes is all I was able to listen to, and I was like, "All right, that's it. I got to go." And of course, you know, pastors, being the book lovers that they are, uh, all loved that podcast episode and geeked out with you on it. But this one, we I had was a like, serious guest like today. Well, that's it's it's ironic. I wanted to be on this podcast. I was like, we can't do this one. Without he, me being on it. And I was the one will not you. do books. He will yeah. not do. I do not do book podcasts. And this one came through uh, from the publicist. And Pete's like, he, before I knew it, Pete had responded. I will take this podcast. Yeah. And I was, I was like, like, we got to do this one. You. And it's because of the topic. And it's a topic that, like I would say, so many people in our society today, they've either dealt with it themselves or had a family member that they've uh, had to deal with. And that being suicide, depression, things of that nature. I was like, we got to, we got to have this guy on. So uh, Peyton, why don't you introduce our guest? Well, our guest is Matthew Sleeth, MD. And I'm going to add that on there because that just sounds cool. Like if I could say Peyton Jones, MD, right? It would sound like a TV show, but Matthew Sleeth, can I call you doctor? You can, or you can call me Matthew. Is there a doctor in the house? I always want to say that. Uh, but uh, This isn't doctor. one of those PhD doctors. This is a no, real doctor. You this know? is this a is medical a, doctor. You know, and it's, it's not even asking, is there a radiologist or a dermatologist in the house? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or a chiropractor, right? Like... Sorry. Well, sometimes you need them. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor, air quotes. No, just joking. Sorry. I, w- w- did your publicist warn you about this podcast? This is like going on to like, I don't know, like the late show for ministry podcast. But I was going to say, uh, he is a former emergency room physician. That is hardcore and chief of hospital medical staff. And right now, he has resigned to talk, preach, and teach, and write about faith and health. Now, he's got a new book that we're going to talk about today, which is called 
Hope Always, How to Be a Force for Life in a Culture of Suicide. So uh, Dr. Sleeth or Matthew, whichever, uh, I just like saying Matthew Sleeth in the MD, if I can say it. I, I do like saying it when I can say it, but welcome onto the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And Pete, I'm really glad you're on this show. And at 13 <laughs> minutes, you can you can check out if you need to. <laughs> I love it. No, no. Pete's going to talk on this one. In fact, he's probably going to drive and I'm going to be in the passenger seat and pass back snacks. Not not so much. But but I do. One, one of the questions, Matthew, that we always start out with when we have a guest on this podcast, and I'm at least on it. I don't know if Peyton does the question when, when it's just him. But um, we like to let everyone know. Tell us your story of how you came to faith, and we would like to like start out the whole podcast with that. And I find that in your case, it might be a little bit more interesting because you came to faith later in life. I think you said in the book at forty-seven. So tell us that story. Yes, actually, I am convinced uh, that uh, it's it's a uh, it's a kind of a thing that you have to do that the later that you come to God, the more you have to tell the story of it. And I can imagine, you know, Paul being asked by his nephew, you know, tell us the story about stoning the Christians again, that sort of thing. So, um, I uh, uh, went to church as a child, stopped as a tween. By the time I was 16 years old, my sole thing in life was surviving. I was living on my own. I'd flunked out of high school. And um, so kind of fast forward a number of years, I became a carpenter and I went to uh, uh, see about a job of these people's house, my favorite kind of customers. They were wealthy. The guy was a periodontal surgeon. They were Jewish. Their 18-year-old daughter walked into the room and their worst nightmare began to unfold. That's my wife, Nancy, who was the 18-year-old. Uh, and... Um, uh, if you're marrying into a Jewish family and you weren't born Jewish, there's only one thing I can recommend to absolutely get on the good side of your in-laws, and that's go to medical school. And uh, and so I, uh, no no college would take me, and I went and and pled my case to an uncle of mine, whom my son is named after, and I said I want to be a doctor. And he said, I'll get you under, into undergraduate school. I'll have him make you a resident of this state. You have one semester. The rest is up to you. And, and he said, but you can do it. And I, I'm, I'm counting on it. <clears throat> so after two and a half years, I was accepted to multiple medical schools without an undergraduate degree, which shows you what you do, can do if you marry my wife, Nancy. And, uh, but you can't. I've got her. So um, we we had our first child at the end of uh, med school and our second in residency. And our religion, even though my wife was raised as a Jew, was the predominant religion of America, which is the American dream, mm -hmm. which is live in as nice a neighborhood as you can, send your kids to the best school you can, um, be comfortable. And the underlying assumption, I think, is that if you do everything right, you'll get through this life alive. You'll get out of this life alive. <clears throat> and a whole bunch of bad things uh, started happening um, in our lives. Um, and uh, the first really was that my wife's brother, only brother, drowned in front of my children. Oh. And that sent my wife into a tailspin. Uh, she got depressed, understandably, um, changed my children. And then kind of one after another, bad things started happening to us. And I had a patient that stalked me. And, you know, I'm just abbreviating here, but scary stuff. When that police finally went and checked on him, they found his mother in the closet where she'd been for a week. He had taped her up and beaten her to death. And, um, and that's the person who had been stalking me. <clears throat> And then the kind of the final thing was that I got home um, uh, from work uh, in the fall. And one morning, it was a perfect morning in New England, not a cl cloud in the sky. And my wife came home from the post office. I was kind of dozing on the couch and said, turn the television on. Something really bad is happening in Manhattan. And we watched in horror with the rest of the world as the Twin Towers came down. And then I got a phone call from my next door neighbor. Uh, she had a son that was my son's age. They'd been raised together. And she said, I need your help getting him from school. Um, his father was in the first plane that hit the building this morning. And 
the the long and the short of that is I woke up to the fact that there was evil on the planet. And my worldview of humanist science was that if you couldn't measure it or reproduce it, it didn't exist and it wasn't worth talking about. Um, but but I had seen good and I had seen evil. And the good I'd seen in the emergency department. I uh, Frequently, we'd be doing a trauma code and that you'd look around and there's 10, 15 people in a room, all coordinated, all working, sometimes to save a person they didn't even know the name of, you know, a John or a Jane Doe. And I will tell you that even though I wasn't a Christian, that the Lord was with me then. Do not think he's not rooting, you know, for <laughs> folks to save lives. So um, I went looking, where does this good come from? And I read the Ramayana and I read the Bhagavad Gita and I read the Quran and a bunch of other things. And, and I found some lovely stories and some truths there, but not an answer to what do you do about a world with evil afoot and that's dying really. Um, and uh, then one day in the hospital, I picked up an orange book it said Holy Bible on it, and I said, you know, we've never read this. Our house had a library in it. We're mad about books in our whole family, and um, and it's a long book, you know, and so I stole it. <laughs> I took it home, and here is where a term that John Wesley uh, uh, coined uh, comes into play in my life, prevenient grace. Uh, the Bible is a big book. Where do you start reading? Um, but my parents had named me Matthew, and if they had named me Numbers, we wouldn't be talking today. But I, I started in. But that would have really gotten you in with your Jewish in-laws in a big way. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I read Matthew and I met Christ, and and that is uh, in my um, by Matthew seven. I was you know kind of gobsmacked. By the way, Matthew 7 is the only verse, this is trivia for your listeners, is the only verse that I know of that was written by a non-Christian and is better known by their rewrite than the judge not lest you be judged, whatever manner you use to judge others. It'll be, and, 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 and Christ goes on to say that we're trying to um, get a speck of dust out of other people's eyes. Meanwhile, we've got a two by four in our own. I recognized a carpenter telling a carpentry joke, you know, when I, when I read it. Gandhi read Matthew 7 and wrote, be the change you want to see in the world. He gives credit to it in his autobiography. So that's more than you wanted to hear. That's probably more than your, your and you can edit this out. <laughs> oh, we don't edit. That's, <laughs> There's that's no editing I, on this there, podcast. There is no editing. That's when how I spoke I to you and the, the train went by, that that just is life for a church planner. Yeah. So planners we, are real. Yeah, so my my uh, my son was next. Uh, my, my wife and then my daughter were all involved in full-time ministry now. Wow. Yeah, I saw that. So, uh, so tell us, um, <clears throat> I know you kind of kicked a little bit into it on, um, you know, your background and, and I'm sure some of what you just talked about is why you wrote the book, but thinking about writing a book or having a reason to write a book is very different than actually knuckling down and doing it. Um, what compelled you to actually write the book today and have it for now? Well, I'd, I'd like to say that I, you know, I had a great reason and I jumped right in. I didn't want to, actually, and I kept kind of putting it off. And, and yet, I think everyone today has been touched by suicide, as, as Pete said, that, that, that um, you know, everybody has some experience with a friend or a loved one. Um, and certainly at work, I had it as an everyday um, experience in, in the emergency department. Um, and it's only gotten worse and worse. Uh, and that wouldn't have been enough to compel me to write about it. But I, but I do know the world now from two different, I wear two different hats, I, both medicine um, and, and as a Christian. Uh, and, and so I, I Googled one day, what does God think about suicide? I just want to know what's available to the average person. And what came up was the first article then, I don't know what it is now, but it was an article by two theologians writing for the Society of Biblical Literature, which is a blue blood, you know, group in the United States, which said that the Bible had no injunctions against suicide. God had nothing against it. And as a matter of fact, Jesus could be considered to have committed suicide. There is nothing more heretical than the summation of that article. And, and so, uh, 
that still probably wouldn't have been enough. I, I, I got the, the popular books, both secular and Christian on it and read kind of uh, uh, about a dozen of those. And then I sat down with the Bible, which is something I do every time I've read a book and started Genesis to go to Revelation and say, God, teach me something here. And on the first page, God gave me something that hadn't occurred in any of those books, neither secular uh, nor the religious. And that was where suicide came from in the first place. And right there in the opening of scripture, Adam and Eve are told, if you do this, you will absolutely die. You will surely die. And they not only did the thing that killed them, they had somebody pushing them. And the fact that that hadn't shown up in any of the books disturbed me, and I got busy and started writing. Hmm. Wow. Tell us, you know, in, in your book, you talk about in the very first chapter, the two patients. Tell everyone the story of your two patients and the difference between them. Yeah, and and this story... Uh, I'm going to emphasize was experienced by me at a time that I did not believe in God. So, you know, put that mindset on as I tell it to you. Uh, the first patient was uh, a man about 30 who came into the emergency department after um, having made the biggest decision of his life without consulting anybody, and that was to take a loaded 22 caliber pistol and point it at his temple and pull the trigger. And he had um, family in the area that loved him. He had a, a really great job. He had recently broken up with a, a, a gal, um, and he had his health until the minute I, I met him. And uh, it was one of those touch and go uh, type of patients. And I, I really clearly remember saying, you know, if I play this one way, I'll call the transplant team and there'll be, you know, 10 people that'll get organs here. Um, but if I do it the other way, you know, may maybe he has a chance. And so he was resuscitated and that's the last I heard of him. The second patient is a man also in, in his uh, 30s and um, who did not have all those things going for him. He came into the emergency department. He was quadriplegic, had a difficult time communicating with me, um, and he only had the use of his non-dominant hand. Otherwise, couldn't use his dominant hand or his legs. And he had a fever and he wanted to get better. He wanted me to find out what the cause of that fever was and fix it because he wanted to spend the weekend with his parents. He normally lived in a nursing home. And as I was working him up and trying to figure out what was going on, the nurse came over to me and said, Matthew, do you, do you, uh, in the book, I call him Lee Barrett, obviously not his real name, but um, do, do you know who that is? And I said, uh-uh. And and she said, that's the guy who shot himself in the head that you resuscitated. And his parents want to talk to you. They've called in. They're coming um, from about an hour away, and they want you to be here so they can talk to you. And I thought, oh, no, they are going to, you know, lay into me. Um, you know, I've left them with a son who is, uh, you know, not, not very functional in the world's eyes. <clears throat> They literally fell on my neck. They kissed me. They thanked me. Um, they said it, they, I'd saved their son, and he had gotten his faith back, and he wanted to live. And it was just a profound moment where um, I saw what faith can do and how it can affect someone's life and how it can take somebody who a lot of the world would say is not going to be very useful or functional and, and give him a joy of being alive. Um, and so th that's, that's where I start the book. Hmm. So one of the questions that I have for you is in regards to COVID, um, COVID-19, you know, from, from what we've heard, uh, there was an uptick in people, uh, suffering uptick in, uh, hardship and uptick in, uh, alcoholism, drug use, addiction, domestic abuse, all those things. And, from what we've heard, uh, suicide, um, suicide prevention, suicide hotlines reported that there was, they said there's, there's a greater pandemic going on. And that is the number of people taking them, their own lives, which has gone off the charts during COVID-19. I was wondering if you could speak into that a bit. Yeah. You know, the, 
the last year that we have really good statistics on our our, our 2018. Um, uh, last year, it appears that the suicides might actually have dipped just a tiny bit, but but wait. <laughs> Now, now we got to back up to 30,000 feet here because the number of overdose deaths went way, way higher. And I believe they're related. Um, and, and if you don't mind, can I just unpack the statistics on suicide just a little bit? Um, because right now, the suicide rate is about 14 per 100,000. That's the way statisticians measure events like this. So they can compare one population to another, one country to another, and one time to another. And the historical high of suicide in the United States was 14 to 15 per 100,000 in, in the aptly named Great Depression. But and so it would seem like we've reached the historical high, but in reality, when you dig into that just a little bit, there's, there's, we're in way worse shape. In 1930, it was pretty easy to kill yourself. By that, I mean, if you overdosed on something and somebody found you, what did they do? They, they might not, most homes didn't even have phones in them. Uh, if, if you could call someplace, there was no ambulance to come and get you. Maybe a doctor would come and have some idea what to do, but probably not. If you managed to get somebody to a hospital, most of them didn't have emergency departments or casualty words they were called at that time. And 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 even if you were gotten into the hospital, there was no way to figure out what you overdosed on. If you had lost your ventilatory drive, there was no way to artificially uh, uh, breathe for you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so today uh, we have just all these systems in place to save somebody if they've overdosed. Even 20% of the people who jump or use firearms like the case that I gave you, just gave you the two patients, uh, can be saved if they're brought to the emergency department. So a much better measure of the desperation in society isn't the actual death rate by suicide. It's the number of people thinking about it and trying it. So during the coming year, it's estimated that about 10 million Americans will wrestle seriously with whether or not to end their own lives. And of that 10 million, one and a half million are going to do something about it or get to the place that they need to be seen and treated in an emergency department. If we took that one and a half million people that will show up in emergency departments in the coming year, transported them back to 1930 and could only treat them with the technology available then, I think we'd be looking at a suicide rate somewhere between one and 300 per 100,000. And so we're, we're in a desperate state and it gets worse. <laughs> um, in 1930, they knew why they were depressed. They're stock market had collapsed. Their banking system had totally, they're two separate things, but both had completely collapsed. The economy had collapsed. One in four Americans is permanently out of work, never got a job back. Um, and the environment had collapsed. We're that's the Dust Bowl. We're having storms in Oklahoma that are coating the Capitol building. Um, and, and on top of that, in 1930, there's nothing to treat depression with. Conversely, today, one in eight Americans needs to use an antidepressant to get through the day. Um, and it gets worse. <laughs> in 1930, if you were found on the ground um, dead with a heroin syringe next to you, the odds are that that was termed a suicide. Today, we separate out that category. If you add um, overdose deaths into what are clearly intentional suicides, you more than double the rate right there. Wow. That's some happy news. It's bad, in other words. Yeah. It, it, Thanks for sharing that, Happy. Yeah. But, you know, the, the title of the book is Hope Always because – it has been studied for over a century, and it's known that a committed Christian is four to six times less likely to take their life uh, than uh, an atheist. Um, before 150 years ago, the church was the only institution that prevented suicide. And you know what? They did a better job than all of the medical miracle system we have right now. Hmm. So there is hope, and it's got to come from the church. You know, a lot of our uh, church planners 
they go into areas that are normally neglected. Like it's not usually the the nice part of town that they're going into. Uh, they're going into the tenderloin. They're going into basically the places that no one else wants to go. And so suicide is something that they have to deal with. What would you say to those pastors who maybe haven't had to deal, deal with it much growing up in their own lives or, and they're because a lot of our guys are younger. They're you know fresh out of seminary if they even went to seminary, and they're they're starting a church plant. What would your advice be to them as they have people starting to come to them, talking to them about their depression or suicidal thoughts or or whatever it is that they're coming to them with? Well, the first thing is that with a little bit of of training um, and 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 a little bit of knowledge, you can be very very useful here. You can prevent those. And secondly, I would ask them to think about just how the church approaches mental illness from the get go. You know, in, in the average church today, um, if you got cancer and you came in and, and said, I have cancer to somebody, that would most likely be announced from the pulpit. I, I would be, you know, uh, I expect that a, a church would ask if you need a ride to the doctor. Um, meals would be provided. In any good church, you're going to get a check from somebody because there's always extra expenses um, with cancer. Um, and the interesting thing is there's not a single case of cancer in the Bible. The church's response to cancer, by the way, is the right one. <laughs> I'm not saying not to do that. But if somebody conversely came in with a new diagnosis of bipolar disease or schizophrenia, it's going to be probably not talked about at all. As a matter of fact, I would venture to say that 99% of ch regular churchgoers have never heard a sermon on suicide. And at the 1% that has, it's after the fact. In other words, it's, it's a reactive sermon to a member who committed suicide. But biblically, Jesus made absolutely no distinction between mental and physical illness. They are a result of the fallen state of man. And so to that, that church planter, I would say that with a book like Hope Always, and if you're a church planter and you don't have money, you write to me and I'll send you a book, okay? <laughs> but um, uh, that with a book like this, um, you should bring yourself up to speed on what the Bible has to say about it, what the limitations of just church and prayer are, what's available from the secular world. And, and to begin to reach out and minister to the people that, that are hurting. And there's mm. nothing that signals I'm hurting more than I don't want to be alive. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and, and I think get, getting some of the stigma off of it, um, you know, like I think it's, it's shocking to people to realize that the most powerful of the Old Testament prophets, Elijah, actually didn't want to live anymore. And Paul even says we despaired of life itself, um, which some some translators he's saying I'm going to die. Why others say no, he didn't want to live. And so you know, uh, yeah. So what I, what, I, what I do in hope always, and I'm sorry if I'm cutting. cutting no, it's off, fine. Uh, Peyton, That's fine. This was in, to stimulate you to talk, which yeah, Pete in, says I do a bad job of. In, um, in, in Hope Always, and the difference between this book, I think, and, and most available on this subject is there are many, many books that try to dissect why do people kill themselves. I want to know why people live. I want to know why is it that Christians are four to six times less likely to take their life. They're not immune. By the way, the studies show that they think about it at the same rate. Um, but they act on it less. And so I took everyone from a 93-year-old who had been suicidal at one time, you know, down to, to teenagers um, and, and asked them about this. And um, uh, so that's just to say that, uh, that, that if you are dealing with it yourself as a pastor, and you're not immune from this, <laughs> um, or, or you're dealing with it with uh, someone in your congregation, like you said, you're in good company. So in the book, I go through and look at every time Satan shows up, and I look at every time somebody says, I want to kill myself, and God shows up. Mm. And um, every time Satan shows up, 
there's a it's a trail of dead bodies <laughs> right um, even when he meets the lord one of his propositions is that he jump off the bridge you know um uh satan and 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 jesus you know succinctly uh, uh you know gives christ's words on this in in john 10 10 everybody knows this verse you know the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy i came that you might have life and have it abundantly um you have to recognize that you're in a battle here, but that other people, whether it was Moses or Elijah or Jonah or David or Paul, had these moments of despair, but they got through them. And yeah. some of the greatest preachers, Charles Spurgeon, suffered from depression throughout his life. But look at the legacy of life that he left behind. Yeah. Well, one one of the questions I really want to ask you um was uh, many of our, our church planners, sometimes, you know, they, they, they planted churches because they started on mission and somehow they found themselves in ministry. Some did go to seminary, um, but I would say by and large, a lot of them, the, the thing about planners is they're learning on, on the job. And many of them are not equipped or don't feel equipped to handle uh, when someone comes and says, Pastor, I'm thinking of taking my own life. I get that question a lot, actually, when I'm coaching planners. Is it's People will reach out to us through the podcast and say, hey, just had someone tell me I, I want to kill myself. How do I handle that? Yeah, so let me, let, let me take you through the worst case scenario. Okay? Yes, please. <laughs> All right. So, um, the, by the way, the book contains not only the, the, the medical and the statistics and everything, and, and it takes you through the Bible, but it also has just tons of practical stuff in there, including what you say uh, to people, because this is a difficult subject and there's, it's a taboo to jump over really to introduce the subject even. And so I, I, I literally give you the sentence that, that I use every time I'd ask somebody about this. Um, you, 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 first of all, you have to know that if you ask somebody about suicide, you will not put the thought in their mind. And you will not make it more likely that for them to commit suicide. That's the number one thing you should have. And that is utterly drilled into you when you go through medical school. Um, you will decrease just by asking. Um, you will decrease the chance of a suicide just by asking if somebody's thinking about it. And so I ask, have you ever been or, or have you thought about hurting yourself? Are you thinking about harming yourself? Anything like that can open the door if they don't flat out tell you I'm I'm thinking about it. If you answer, if you ask that, and the person answers yes, I am. I think that you got to ask some follow up questions here. the The next question is, how would you do that? Have do you have a plan? If the answer is I'm suicidal and I have a plan, then you have to ask about means. So if somebody says, I'm suicidal, I'm thinking about killing myself uh, by overdosing on drugs, and I've stockpiled drugs to take, you have an emergency on your hands. And that's why God invented the 911 system. <laughs> um, you, you call and you say, I'm sitting here with somebody who's actively suicidal and has a plan and the means to do it. And and you let an emergency department take over. That's why they have a million and a half visits in the next year of, of those kind of folks. Um, if it's somewhere back from that, you can, you can, I think every pastor should have a couple things in their, in their cell phone. One is the number 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255. That's the National Suicide Hotline. And it's a national clearinghouse that has uh, knowledge of local resources. And, and so they can walk somebody uh, through that. And so that's, that's how I'd start with a very worst case um, uh, scenario, which is somebody that's actively suicidal with a plan. Um, never agree to keep suicide uh, a secret. Um, e even if they say, you know, I'm just confessing to this. If somebody is actively suicidal, um, has a plan and the means, you are obligated um, to get help uh, beyond yourself there. Hmm. 
I've got another question for you. And, and sometimes, um, as you know, doctor, there, there will be people who have personality disorders, um, people that like to keep pastors busy. <laughs> uh, pastor, I'm going to kill myself. Oh, I just don't know. I think if, if you didn't, you know, uh, you know, I just think I'll kill myself unless someone comes over and visits with me. Um, how do you teach ministers to handle people that are perhaps, you know, not, they don't have ideation, they don't have a plan, but they sure like a lot of attention. How do you differentiate those and how do you handle them differently? Ooh, now there's a good and a hard question. I might've so, been a psych nurse in a past life. I'm just saying. You were. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so one of the things I do in the book is as I've got a primer, if you will, on mental illness and and I divided up into the, the, the major thought disorders and then the personality disorders. And I think that, as you mentioned, it, it, is, it, it really is a useful tool for a pastor to understand, in particular, what personality disorders are. Um, and there are, there are borderline and antisocial and oppositional defiant um, uh, type of folks who you are, you are over your pay grade in some ways um, dealing with those. And, and you're going to have to understand that you are above your pay grade here. And, and one of the first things you learn in medicine is if you want to stay safe, and I was never sued or named in a suit, is you got to know when you're over your head. And, and call for help. And I think that kind of person um, uh, benefits from counseling. Um, and, and the second thing that I think a pastor should have are some resources of counselors that you trust. Um, it's ideal if they share the same faith, but all truth is God's truth. And, and if a secular pastor uh, you know, can help that kind of person, um, that's, that's where you should go. Having said that, however, uh, I talk about some people I know with personality disorders who have, in their faith, really addressed those personality disorders. One of the reasons that um, people may want to die is because they're not a great person. <laughs> Bec and, and God wants you to die to that. And, and be careful here, <laughs> all right? Uh, um, practice these conversations before you have them with somebody, because if you've been a psych uh, nurse, Peyton, you know that this can blow up in your face uh, pretty, pretty fast, and you don't want to do this alone. You want to have somebody else there with you. Um, but one of the reasons that people can be depressed is because God wants them to die to that person and to be reborn and remolded and reformed. And, and, and I'm just speaking from my own personal experience. I, um, I was in, I'm going to go down a bunny trail, but I, believe me, the bunny trail comes back around here. I was sitting in the airport in Charlotte, North Carolina, a number of years ago. And I was just reading and I was exhausted. I was there with my wife. I'd been, I'd been teaching, you know, for days on end. And uh, there was one of those people who just wanted to interrupt you. You know what I mean? Hey, what are you reading? Hey, where are you from? What team do you root for? You know, and I'm just like, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Finally, the guy said, uh, what do you do for a living? And I was like, uh, I said, I'm a writer <laughs> trying to dodge. And he said, what do you write? And then he had me. I said, I'm a, I'm a Christian writer. Now I got to start acting like a Christian, okay? And he started questioning me about things in the Bible, and he pulled out a book. I think it's called Misquoting Jesus by a, a Satan, a guy who runs a, a, a religion department in North Carolina who who's, uh, doesn't believe in God. It just so happened that the first thing he opened it to, I had just listened to, and I can't believe this because you just recently had something on your show about him. I had listened to R.C. Sproul talk about the particular uh, topic. And so I was hot and ready to go. You know? And I explained. And then he said, well, what about this, this uh, mistake in the Bible or whatever? And I said, listen, I'll tell you, I've been a Christian since I was 47. And I'll tell you why I know it's real, because it taught me how to love people. And I didn't really know how to do that um, without. And so, you know, the bottom line is love, and that doesn't work on everybody. And so for that pastor, I would say you, you're going to have to offer love, 
offer the gospel. If it doesn't work, offer them a therapist. Uh, that would be my advice. And Peyton, you've been a psych nurse, so you you chip in here with your thoughts on that. I tend to, uh, you know, and it'd be interesting to hear your your opinion on this. I tend to um, tell people, you know, pastors, that when it gets to that, when you have the person constantly crying wolf who wants attention, and there's a fine line because sometimes people that are hurting that, that will take their lives want attention and want help. So that's why I asked about the distinguishing the two, not to be like, oh, they, they called me and didn't do it. They must have a personality disorder. But there, there are those, I suppose, because as a psych nurse, I pick up on it. I think most pastors would not recognize personality disorders. They just, in fact, because people with personality disorders tend to be very manipulative um, often the pastor comes away thinking they're failing that person. They're doing something wrong. They're, they're the ones in the dark. But uh, I've learned with personality disorders, like you said, to, to realize I'm above my pay grade. But I will always tell someone uh, with a personality on their first occurrence of that after listening and, and doing an assessment, I will tell them I will have to call somebody because I'm worried you're a danger to self. And, um, and, and set that kind of clear boundary from day one that when you call me, um, with suicidal ideation, uh, and, and have a plan that, you know, uh, it's time to, it's time to call someone exactly. You said time to go above my pay grade and they learn, well, if I call them, (laughs) going to get a 5150, you know, I'm going to get a, a, yeah, I'm going to get locked up and assessed for 24 hours. So I, I, I've learned that with that, that usually nips it in the bud. If it's, you know, someone with a personality disorder, they realize I can't manipulate them, that, that backfires. But then if it's somebody who really has an issue, we've helped them. And that's kind of the, you know, I, I, I think one of the things we have to get out of is the, the savior, the Jesus mentality. Like, I'm going to save this person, you know, um, I've never been able to save anyone. I've never been able to be Jesus, but I can be there for people and I can counsel people and I can listen to people and I can do that. But yeah, once I figure out it's a, a personality disorder, that's my, that's my MO generally. You know, and one of my warnings to uh, pastors, and there's a chapter just to pastors in this book, uh, is not to get involved in counseling without some real training. You yeah. need to know what uh, transference and countertransference and, and, and these types of things are so that you don't find yourself stepping over a line that you never intended to. And, and, that, hap- and that can happen easily. And it's brought a lot of ministries down uh, by not recognizing that that you you can't fix everything or that you are over your pay grade um and and all all the people who do this professionally um who uh you know are really qualified to do it have people that they report to um people that they unpack trouble patients with um that sort of thing you can't you can't lone ranger this one you know let me ask you a question here and and this is more because I want to know <laughs> this, this is, I got a doctor on the line. I'm going to get my answer here. So in, in my family, there has been a lot of mental illness, depression, uh, suicide attempts, things of that nature. And it's interesting to me because I see it a lot in the women uh, in my family. And it's, it's made me concerned because I've got a, a young daughter as I've told Peyton, man, my daughter is like the spitting image of me. And I'm like, great. Does that mean, you know, when she hits puberty or whatever, she's going to have these same issues that seem to run rampant through my family? Are there things that as a parent we can do for our kids to help them, not with the, you know, I mean, obviously when someone just gets depressed because they break up with someone, I mean, that's a totally different situation than someone who suffers from, you know, bipolar or, or you know, depressive type of things, and, and they have that sort of the mental illness side. Is there anything as parents we can do to help shape our kids while they're young and growing up? 
Great question. And again, addressed in the book. Uh, we, I, we should have had him do the cha-ching, Peyton. You know, no. every time we say the name of our, our books, like every time Peyton no, says I, I didn't say the name or anything. Just we yeah, go. but it only applies to us doing oh, it for okay. our books. Church Plantology, cha-ching, Reaching the Unreached, cha-ching, Church Zero, cha-ching. That's how it works. And I just plugged three books. See what I did? Yeah. That's why we do it. It's punitive to me for when I do it to my yeah. own book. I'm I'm not sure I mentioned the name of the book, but anyways, <laughs> um, welcome welcome to the podcast. One one of the things um, I think is to you know have an understanding of what kind of world they live in, and the the message from society today is that you are an accident, and that nothing ultimately has any meaning and that there's no absolute right or wrong. Of course, those are, those are completely different than a Christian worldview, um, if you will. And so I think that you can no longer assume that a young person lives, even if it's your own child and they're in a Christian home, that they live in a Christian milieu. <laughs> um, I, was asked to talk to a group of high school students. It was 110 high school students that were coming through Lexington, going to Washington, D.C., and their pastor said, can you, can you spend an hour or so with these students? I just want them to talk to you. Um, I said, absolutely. I got a church and a gazillion pizzas for them. I said, I'll, I'll only talk to them. I'll feed them, you know. And we weren't talking about suicide or anything. Um, we were talking about the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. And and then one of the students said, Dr. Sleeth, what are you working on right now? And I was working on this unnamed book <laughs> about suicide. Wait, we'll plug it. Yeah. <laughs> and from that moment on, you could have heard a pin fall on carpet. It turned out that they were traveling with a nurse because two of the students were on suicide watch. And one of the gals in the front row right next to me had lost a first cousin that week to suicide. This was real and it was raw in their life. And, and so I got to ask them questions. They got to ask me questions. And one of the questions I asked them is, has anyone in church ever talked to you about suicide? No. I said, have you ever heard from an adult in church that suicide is wrong or right? Have you heard any of this? No. You cannot assume, even if it's your own child, that they know what you're thinking about this. And I think that you have to be clear. And I give examples in the unnamed book of lessons to, cheap, to, to teach when they're cheap. <laughs> Um, you know, there, there are kids growing up that have almost no boundaries. Um, and, and boundaries are something that God gives us because he loves us and that parents give children because they love them. And so I think you've got to, you've got to teach things like standing up for yourself before it's, do I get in the back seat with this person? Do I take this pill that I have no idea what's in it and what it does to me? Etc. And you begin to teach those lessons when kids are young, and they're not going to like them. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, and and so I have a number of particulars about that, and I think that you have to understand where their world is. I don't, you know, I don't think that you would you would take your child eight. 9, 10, 11 years old, take them to the worst part of the biggest city near you, open the door and say, go have fun. I'll pick you up in a few hours. But when a child gets on the internet, that's exactly what's happening unless you put some boundaries and control about it. I think uh, that's important. That's their world too. Um, yeah. And I think talking about things like sleep hygiene, and that's, there's, there's young folks who are never getting a night's sleep because they're answering um, texts, et cetera. So I, I talk about all those things in there, Pete. Mm. Well, we appreciate so much you coming on, Dr. Sleeth. 
The, the book has been called Hope Always, and you can grab it today wherever fine Christian books are sold. I want to thank you for coming. Is there anywhere else, Doctor, where they can connect with you? Uh, if they go to blessedearth.org uh, or just type my name into a, a search bar. It'll... Matthew Sleeth in MD. Yes. MD. So. Yeah. .com hey, for that one, actually. .com. Is it? Yeah. Nice. Yep, yep. All right. Matthew Sleeth md.com and i can say it uh but hey you know uh, uh pete while you're doing all this uh, uh you know uh, typing in matthew sleeth md into your web browser you don't have time as a church planner to do all of your 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 bookkeeping all that pete what, how do you swing all that well, you know i i appreciate you asking peyton uh, i use a service called simplifychurch.com and they take care of all of my irs compliancy bookkeeping payroll website everything what's that website simplifychurch.com in fact if you just reach out to them and talk to josh henry and say pete and peyton sent me they'll take real good care of you well, you know, Pete, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. And I'm going to see your ad and I'm going to raise you one. <laughs> Did you know you probably spend countless hours preaching your heart out every week? But then what, Pete? How can the people in your church online find those messages again? Not just last week's message, but what about last months or years? If people are going to go to your website and listen to your previous message, they're going to have to scroll through endless pages to find that message, especially spending that time on MatthewSleethMD.com. So instead of sending people over to YouTube or Facebook to listen to it, hey, there's a better way. Sermon Boss, Pete. SermonBoss.com. A visual, video, audio. Our sponsors <laughs> love our ads. That's all I got to say. We suck at this. Uh, live streaming video platform, which comes with a podcast that you can easily integrate in your church's website and church app. So you no longer need to send your people anywhere else to find your teachings. Sermon Boss will allow people to easily search for a find, discover, and even customize a personal playlist from your teachings right from your website. This is why he said Pete should do this. So it's SermonBoss.com. Hey, this is why we don't have more sponsors. But uh, this has been Peyton Jones, Pete Mitchell, and Matthew Sleeth, MD. The book is Hope Always. Thanks for joining us on today's edition of the Church Planner Podcast, and we'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of the Church Planner Podcast with Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. We'd love to hear your comments on this episode of the Church Planner Podcast. Visit us online and let us know what you thought at churchplannerpodcast.com. If you subscribe to us via iTunes and have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a positive review. The more positive reviews we receive in iTunes, the more iTunes will promote us to other church planners who would benefit from this show. This podcast is brought to you by the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the iTunes newsstand or online via churchplannermagazine.com. Music